Good morning, everyone. So happy to see so many new faces joining us this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Marcus Donaldson. I'm one of the pastors here. In our time so far in Peter's first letter to the Christians in Northern Asia Minor, Northern Asia Minor, excuse me, that we've been studying for the last few weeks, we've seen in the first 12 verses alone several things, several reasons that we can be thankful to God. So I pray this week that the Lord would remind you of not only what we've covered so far in Peter's letter, but that he would remind you of the blessings in your life that you should be specifically thankful for. In verse, verses 13 and 15, we saw last week that after really developing their, their understanding of this, this great saving work that God did in their lives, in every Christian's life since Jesus, that, that he starts to command them, right? He, he starts to call them to certain things. We saw last week he called them to hope in verse 13 and to holiness in verse 15. Both of these calls to hope and to holiness were introduced by imperatives. Imperatives, again, are those verbs of command. Then in, in verses 17, 17 through 21, which we'll be studying this morning, we see another imperative that comes at the latter part of verse 17, where he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So what we might understand, at least at the beginning this morning, is that inseparably linked So the call to hope and the call to holiness is the call to honor God. And we see at least three reasons in this text that Peter calls the readers in Northern Asia Minor to honor God. The God whom Christians call upon as father is nevertheless an impartial judge. We see that in verse 17. And then Christians, they have been redeemed by the death of Jesus Christ from their former way of life. And the Christian faith and hope are the result of God's eternal plan to raise and glorify Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read verses 17 through 21. When you have it, say amen. All right, it gets faster every week. Peter writes this, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, and we are just in awe of your holiness and your redemptive work. Father, let that inform our worship. Let that inform our livings, our lives. Let us... Let us conduct ourselves with reverence for the remainder of our days because of what you've done and what you will do for all who are in Christ Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. So Peter begins in verse 17 by reminding his readers of their intimate relationship with God the Father 
by virtue of the new birth that he described in verse three, right? So this new birth brought them into a new family where they know and relate to God as father. Now, God as father, it signifies both his love and his authority in the lives of his children. Now, this shouldn't be too familiar for those of you who were here during our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. But in Matthew 6, uh, verse 9, Jesus taught his disciples to pray this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then Paul affirmed the legitimacy of this, uh, this type of address, calling God Father when he said this to the Galatians in Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Nevertheless, Peter didn't want his readers to forget that although they have an intimate relationship with their heavenly father, that he is also an impartial judge. So they, he doesn't want them to let that familiarity degrade his holiness, right? So we understand that God is our Father if you are in Christ Jesus. But Peter doesn't want his readers. He doesn't want that relationship to distort their concept of his holiness. He reminds them that their Heavenly Father is also the one who judges impartially, that is, without favoritism according to each one's works, that is, obedience to his revealed will. So Peter, he has the final judgment in view here. And we'll see Peter develop this thought later or this theme later of judgment in the letter. So I'm not going to preach ahead this morning. So those of you who are looking for the great white throne judgment, those of you who are looking for uh, the judgment seat of Christ, we're not going to get into all that today because Peter doesn't get into that all uh, in the text. So we're just going to, we're going to understand some very basic fundamental things That'll help us understand what Peter's talking about here. The first, according to scripture, the final judgment is conducted by God, the impartial judge. Yeah, duh, Marcus, I see it in the text. However, it's through Christ. John 5, 22 and verse 27. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Then a few verses later, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So God, the impartial judge, has appointed Christ, his son, to execute the judgment. According to scripture, the final judgment will include believers. No one bats an eye. We know time and time again in scripture that that everyone who is apart from Christ will be judged. However, Christians, we will also be judged according to our works. And we will either uh, obtain reward or lose reward but not eternal life based on our lack of obedience or faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, Paul writes this, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has or has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So some Christians will smell like a campfire or like a barbecue in heaven, but they'll be in heaven nonetheless. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all, you know what that word means in the Greek? All. 
appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now those apart from Christ will be judged and consequently condemned to eternal punishment. John three eighteen. whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him, whoever does not believe in him will be condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Of God, Their wickedness, it will be exposed and they will be without excuse. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death, and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, uh, the question becomes then, are we saved by works? And we can very quickly and clearly say no. Judgment according to a person's works, it's, it's understandable because it is the logical result of a relationship with God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, it makes it very clear that we are not saved by works. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, listen to this, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works then done within the Christian, uh, within the context of the Christian faith are the necessary consequence. Good works done within the context of the Christian faith are the necessary consequence or inevitable result of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, good works do not produce salvation. Good works are the product of salvation. So then what are good works? In a word, obedience. Like we saw last week in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, good works are conforming our thoughts and behaviors to the character of God as revealed in his word, which is expressed in holy living. Peter wrote, be holy as your Father who is in heaven is holy. So according to scripture, true love and worship of God are marked by an understanding that he is the Christian's loving and generous father, but also a holy, righteous, and just judge. So what we might understand then is that it's biblically inconsistent to say that someone has been saved but has not been changed. If good works, obedience to his revealed will, are the necessary or inevitable consequence of salvation... It's inconsistent, according to Scripture, to say that someone is saved but is not changed. We see many people go through the outward motions of giving their lives to Christ, but no lifestyle change follows. This is not real salvation, but it is the dead faith that James talks about in his letter, James 2, 17, and then again in 26. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Therefore, Peter wants his readers to conduct themselves with fear during their stay on earth. Now that that phrase, conduct yourselves with fear, it means to live in reverence, awe, or respect towards God. Now the background for this call to fear, it's found in Deuteronomy and wisdom tradition that we see in scripture, but it's a fear that informs all of life. Deuteronomy 8.6, Moses writes this, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now this fear, it's not dread or anxiety, rather it's a healthy response to the understanding that God is an entirely holy being and cannot and will not tolerate sin. So this reverent or respectful fear does not contradict or undermine our confidence that a person is saved again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. A confident driver possesses a healthy fear that of an accident and it prevents him this healthy fear of getting into an accident prevents a driver from driving recklessly or at least for most of us right in a similar way a genuine fear of judgment does not paralyze us with fear rather it inspires us to good works holiness and obedience and it hinders believers from giving into sinful and selfish living Now, the remainder of this passage, verses 18 through 21, they explain why believers should live with awe and reverence and provide a rich theology of redemption. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he rightly observed that redemption is God's greatest work. Great was the work of creation, he writes, but greater the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem us than to make us, he writes. In the one, there was but the speaking of a word. In the other, the shedding of blood. The creation was but the work of God's fingers. Redemption is the work of his arm. So look with me, 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Peter writes, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. I want to draw your attention to that word ransomed there in verse 18. Your translation, it may say redeemed. I would actually prefer that there, but both are pretty accurate. Well, accurate. That word redemption, it's one of the the, uh, pictures or metaphors that the New Testament uses to give insight to God's gracious saving work in Christ Jesus. So here's a technical definition. Redemption is the process by which sinful humans are bought back from the bondage of sin into a relationship with God through grace by the payment of Jesus' death. So it's closely related to salvation. 
Redemption is closely related to salvation, but what we need to understand is that redemption is more specific. It denotes the means by which salvation is achieved, namely how God bought us out of our bondage to sin, how God paid the price in Christ Jesus. So redemption, then, it views man's condition as a prisoner to sin and unrighteousness and sees God as coming to set that prisoner free by paying the full price required. You remember what Jesus said in John eight thirty four. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We need to be rescued from our bondage or slavery to sin. And that redemption has a price. Paul writes this in Romans 3, 23 through 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That word, Redeemed or redemption or ransomed is lutrao in the Greek, and it literally means to uh, to pay a ransom or to redeem. In the Greek, uh, in the Greek like Greco-Roman world, this word lutrao it was a technical term for buying back prisoners or slaves. Now, Peter's language, it may resonate with this Greco-Roman usage. However, I think that it's rooted in the Old Testament. Now, I was very tempted, and I'm very tempted now because I have 20 minutes left to give us an Old Testament survey on, uh, on redemption. However, we're going to take a 30,000-foot view. So I think just... With you know, walk with me through this, but well, I know that this is rooted in Exodus 12. Rooted in Exodus 12, where we see the first Passover. We read a portion of this last week when we were talking about girding our loins or preparing our minds for action. But in Exodus 5 1, we know that uh, Moses and Aaron they go to Pharaoh and it says, This thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Pharaoh refused to do that. So God unleashed a series of plagues on Egypt. The series of 10 plagues, it culminated in divine judgment, death of the firstborn, the firstborn child and the firstborn animal in every family. In order for the Hebrews or the Israelites to be spared, God ordered that they would kill a lamb that was a year old that was without spot or blemish as a sacrifice to the Lord. They were to kill it with a knife, splatter its blood all over the door, right the sides and the top of the doorpost. And when they did that, the, the, this divine, uh, this angel of death, he, when he would look on these houses, he would pass over them and not execute his judgment, God's judgment, on those families who were covered by the blood. So the lamb's life, it was the price requi- required to spare the life of the Israel. Israelite family's firstborn child. The lamb then, it died as a substitute for the child. It was a substitutionary death that paid the price God required and redeemed the firstborn from death. 
It was the blood then that redeemed the family from divine judgment. It was the death of that lamb that paid the price to satisfy God's judgment or God's wrath. And so the angel of death passed by. Now, like we saw last week, Exodus 12, we read a portion of that, like I mentioned in verse 11, that their loins were girded, right? They, they had their, their robe tied up. I was about to demonstrate it. We don't need to do that. We're not going there. But they had their loins girded. They were ready to go, had their staff in hand. They had their, sh- their sandals on, and they ate the meal quickly, right? They were ready to go. Exodus 12, 29 through 33, this is what we see. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you had said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians, they were urgent with the the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So they moved out immediately that night, and God thereby decreed that his people would celebrate this Passover continually, annually, once a year. And I think this is for at least two reasons. One, it pointed backward as time went on, as people uh, got further and further from this, this mighty act of deliverance, this mighty act of redemption. I think it pointed backwards. It continually reminded Israel that God delivered them from this devastating judgment through a substitutionary lamb who died in their place and paid the price to redeem and ransom them from Egyptian slavery. Now we see from then on, this became the dominant theme in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Throughout the Old Testament era, up until the time of Jesus, and even a little bit past that with the destruction of the temple, AD 70, a little too far, but priests, they would sacrifice millions and millions and millions of lambs on behalf of the people to atone, to pay for their sin. So I think that also this pointed forward. So it pointed backwards and it pointed forward to the true Passover lamb who would one day die and rise again as the perfect and final substitutionary sacrifice to redeem sinners with his blood. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he says this in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, the one who we we are covered in his blood, he has been sacrificed. This lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. This rich background is what Peter's writing from. So what did God redeem sinners from then? He redeemed sinners from our bondage to sin is the short answer. We are enslaved to sin, but more specifically, Peter wants his readers to understand that God has redeemed them from the, the, 
the things that he has described up to this point in the letter. Let's look at them. Their former passions in verse 114. These passions, like we talked about uh, last week, they're the sinful desires and thoughts, uncontrolled sensual appetites and impulses and all other unrighteous motivations and urges that compel us when we are a non-Christian. We're redeemed from these former passions, Peter says. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We are redeemed from that in the blood of Christ Jesus. In verse 14, we also see that we're redeemed from our former ignorance. Ignorance, it refers to the absence of spiritual understanding. 1 Corinthians 2.4, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We are redeemed from our spiritual ignorance. Now we know God, we know his saving work in Christ Jesus, and we believe in the one that we have not seen and the one that we, that we do not see now. We're redeemed from our futile way of life. We see that in verse 18. Futile, it identifies a vain, useless, and worthless experience. No matter what we may think, in the eyes of God, every unredeemed man and woman's life, the, the life that they're living is futile. Futile, it's worthless, it's vain, it's useless. Even the greatest accomplishments unbelievers achieve are futile from an eternal perspective. Jesus made this clear. He made it clear when he asked these two penetrating questions to his disciples. He says this in Matthew 6, or excuse me, Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This futile way of life, it has been inherited or handed down from our forefathers, that is, from generation to generation. Obviously, this can be true of both the Jew and the Gentile. The Pharisees and their followers, they were the prime adherents of a worthless tradition. A worthless tradition. They, they had it from God himself, but the scribes, the Pharisees, and those who followed them, they were, they were uh, working through this worthless system, this futile system, and this is why Jesus rebuked them in Matthew 15, 7 through 9. He says this, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Through faith in Christ, God has redeemed every sinner from bondage to sin and from these futile ways that Peter has identified already in this letter. Now, the second part of verse 18. What did he redeem us with? Not with perishable things, Peter says, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We see a negative, positive aspect here. Peter contrasts what God did not redeem believers with, that is, not with silver or gold, with how they are redeemed with Christ's blood. Psalm 49, 7 and 8 says this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly, and can never suffice. The prophet Isaiah, he saw the true nature of God's ultimate redemption of his people when he wrote this, Isaiah 52, verse three. For thus says the Lord, 
You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. Since all sin is a violation of God's holy law and a debt owed to him, he is the one whom every person's sin debt must be paid. There are some people who think that that God redeemed us from Satan. That's not true. We don't sin against Satan. We sin against God. God is the one that we are in debt to, that our sin offends, that our, our sin transgresses his holy law, and we are in bondage to sin. We are, we are um, cursed by his holy law, and he has to purchase us or redeem us from that. Now, what this means is that since all sin is against God, he therefore sets the terms of redemption. He determines the price. Not us, not you, not me, not the, the world that we're living. It's not being a good person. He sets the terms. And the price that he required as payment was the life of his own son, which is why Peter writes, with the precious blood of Christ. Now, this blood, it doesn't refer to the fluid in his body, but the whole of his redemptive death. Now, you're like, well, it says blood. It must mean the literal blood. Well then, brothers and sisters, we are not redeemed if we needed to sprinkle Christ's blood on us. Scripture speaks of Christ's blood nearly three times as often as it mentions the cross and five times more than it refers to the death of Christ. So the word blood is a New Testament metonym or reference or synonym for his whole redemptive work, his atoning work on the behalf of sinners. So by mentioning the blood, Peter points us back to the Old Testament sacrificial rituals, which we just had a 30,000 foot view of. So let's add a little bit more to it. But blood was necessary for atonement. And we see this in Leviticus 17:11. for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the shedding of blood, it signifies death, the giving up of one's life, and is precious because without it, no one can live. Hebrews 9.22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without, listen to me, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Whose blood will it be? The Old Testament imagery, it continues when, Peter's compare, or when Peter compares Christ to a lamb. He says, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We know in the Old Testament that sacrifices were required to be without blemish. And we see it time and time and time again in the Old Testament. However, this word without spot is not found in the Old Testament, but it reinforces, it reinforces for us the idea that Christ was a perfect sacrifice. Animals were without defect physically, but Peter's point here is that Jesus was sinless and thus he is the perfect sacrifice because of his sinless life, making his blood the most precious of all. Hebrews 9.12, he, that is Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's once and for all. It's his sacrifice. That's it. There is no more. It's, it's Jesus' blood. It's his sacrifice. Or it's your imperfect sacrifice that will never suffice. God, the one that we owe the sin debt to, determines the price, not us. He gave the sacrifice. 
By whom did God redeem sinners? Peter says that he was foreknown in verse 20 before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So by whom? None other than the eternal sinless son of God. This foreknowledge of Christ's redeeming death, it corresponds to what we read earlier in verse 2. Thus God knew and determined the complete program of redemption before the foundation of the world. What that means for you and I this morning is that the cross is not an afterthought. It wasn't a plan B. God didn't see what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. He didn't see what happened throughout the the course of human history to this point where people are, are desperately wicked and say, man, I need to send my son. It wasn't plan B. Jesus on the cross was plan A. So God self-determined before the foundation of the world, before history ever began, he would send his sinless son to a specific point to redeem a people from their bondage of sin. Jesus says this, he understood this in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a what? Ransom for many. So the revelation of God's redemptive plan is for the benefit of those who, upon hearing the gospel, would put their faith in Christ Jesus and enter into a living hope or the new birth on, uh, that is based on, grounded in, rooted in, secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, the last times, they signal the fulfillment of salvation history, which began with the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are we in the last times? Yes, says Peter. He says that Christ's redemptive work was for the sake of you, meaning all the redeemed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake... For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He ex- we exchange, right? Like, we're sinners. Christ is holy, sinless, perfect. He gives us his righteousness. God gives us his righteousness so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, for what does God redeemed sinners, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We see the exclusivity of redemption through him that is Jesus alone. That means there's no other way to God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other way. So a person cannot be a believer in God apart from faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apart from redemption, there is no believer. You're not a believer. There's not the universe. It's not Allah. It's not Buddha. It's not whatever the heck people are saying all over YouTube or wherever you're getting your news. It is only through Christ and Christ alone. That's it. 
The God in whom Peter's readers have believed, who they know as Father through the new birth, he raised him, that is Christ, from the dead and gave him glory. Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Jesus, who through... Uh, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what did God do all of this for? So that your faith and hope are in God. In other words, those who respond to uh, to the gospel in faith are to direct their faith and hope towards God, specifically to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whose foreknowledge this great plan of redemption was conceived and accomplished. Isaiah 42, or 44, 22 says this, I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. What did God do all of this for? so that we would return to him. So Christ's resurrection from the dead is the foundation of the living hope like we saw earlier in verses three through 12. So too here, believers, hope is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What, what we know, our, our living hope, we, we see we see that God raised Jesus from the dead. We know, we read it in scripture. We know that he's at the right hand of God. We read it in scripture and we know and we believe that because he fulfilled this promise in Christ Jesus, that he will fulfill his promise for those who are in Christ Jesus as well. So remember Peter's primary command, this imperative that gives us insight to his main thought. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Brothers and sisters, that means that all who are in Christ, the children of God, we need to be careful how we live because we all have a father who is absolutely impartial in his judgment. Now this truth alone ought to keep us from presumptuous sin, right? Which is always the result of taking his grace for granted. So when you and I think, oh, I can do this and get away with it, God will forgive me, right? Like, after all, he's my father and therefore my friend. Where We are on dangerous ground. Because the idea of having God as father, it leads Peter to the exact opposite conclusion. He calls us to live out our days in reverent, Fear, respect, honor, awe of God because of his impending and impartial judgment. Now, if this won't motivate us to pursue holiness, perhaps reflecting on the price of redemption will compel us to pursue holiness. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul writes this, For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Truly, we have been bought with a costly price that we could never pay ourselves. Now, let's not... Let's not um, dilute this, right? Jesus didn't just come and rule. He came and died a brutal death on a cross. The pathway 
to glorification was through pain. And it was for the sake of you. So do we really need any other reason to pursue holy living? And for anybody who has not yet been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we've seen it, we've read it this morning, that you're still in your bondage to sin. You haven't been bought back. You're essential, this, is what, this is what I think we're supposed to understand. When, when, a, when a person is not a believer, right? When, when they reject God's offer of redemption, when they reject his perfect sacrifice, they spit in God's face and say, I don't need your sacrifice. I can do it on my own. And everything that we've read this morning says that you can't. He's provided the sacrifice that will purchase your redemption, eternal redemption, once and for all sacrifice. It is here he has provided this lamb for the sake of you. So, brothers and sisters, we need to pursue holiness. Peter calls us to hope, verse 13. He calls us to holiness, verse 15. And he calls us to honor God. We honor God with the way that we conduct ourselves. Every person will be impartially judged. Now, if you want to come to heaven smelling like a campfire, we'll go ahead and keep on living this worthless life. But this cost should tell you how valuable you are to God. and what he's willing to give to be in a relationship with you for eternity. If you're not a believer, it's time to repent and believe. We are in the last times. We're waiting for the Lord to be revealed where he will execute judgment. Reject Jesus if you want to, that's on you, but don't be fooled about the punishment. Don't be fooled about the consequences of that decision. Reject his offer, reject his sacrifice, will then spend eternity. He's going to respect that decision for eternity. And you will experience all of his wrath. I don't want that. No one here wants that for you. Believe in Jesus today. Pray with me.